God, I pray, Lord, as Veterans Day approaches this week, Lord, we do want to honor and recognize those who have served in armed forces. We give you thanks uh, for their sacrifice, for the way they have modeled what it means to serve others. And God, what a great reminder it is for us as Christians that that is our calling, to be self-sacrificial, to be servants of all. And God, I pray as we look to your word now that you would truly shape us this morning. God, I pray that as we approach your word, your living and active word, Lord, we are open for you to pierce us this morning. We want this to be more than just an intellectual exercise. We don't want to just hear the opinions of a man, but we want to hear from you, God. So God, would you give us a leaned-in posture this morning? Help us to be hungry for your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been uh, spending the last uh, five weeks looking at the topic of eschatology, which is the study uh, or the doctrine of the last days, the end times, and we have covered a lot of ground. Uh, We have looked at various views related uh, to the millennium. Uh, We have uh, unpacked some of the implications related to the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us. And we have explored uh, the idea of us receiving glorified bodies in our heavenly existence. Well, today I want to look at an important eschatological event, uh, which is the the judgment of God. This is not a popular topic. This is a topic that you may or may not have heard a lot of sermons on. But I do think the reality that all of us will stand before God as our judge is important as we think about our eschatology and what that means for us here in the present. In fact, the way that I want to preach on this topic today, I want to connect the judgment of God with how that should impact the way that we wait faithfully for Jesus to return. That we're in a, a posture of waiting as Christians, waiting for God to make all things new and usher us into uh, the eternal state. The hard thing, though, is that the idea of of waiting is really hard for us. We we dread hearing the words, sir, madam, you're going to have to wait. It reminds us that we're not really in control. I don't know if you've ever heard of the American prayer, but the American prayer goes something like this. Lord, give me patience and give it to me right now. We are living in Uh, a very impatient culture that values immediate gratification, it values efficiency, really at all costs. We want those diet programs to work overnight. We want to get every uh, traffic light to be green as we drive. We want the fastest internet speed. If it was up to us, we would remove altogether the idea of a waiting room. We do not like to wait. And yet the reality is, is that much of life is about waiting. Waiting for that appointment to see the doctor, waiting to graduate, waiting to get into a college, waiting to find a godly spouse, waiting to get a loan from the bank, waiting for you to start a family, waiting for your kids to grow out of diapers, waiting for that job offer, waiting for you to sell that house, waiting for that trial to pass waiting for your prayers to be answered. Statistics show that an average person waits for about an hour every day, just waiting on something. 
waiting for the elevator, waiting for the microwave, waiting for the water to turn hot or to turn cold, waiting for the traffic light, waiting to be seated at a restaurant, waiting for your food to come to you, waiting for your computer to load, right? The, the list goes on and on. And if you take an average life of maybe 70 years, that means that we will be waiting for close to three years of our lives. Much of life is about waiting. And yet the problem really isn't the waiting, if we were honest today. The problem is what happens in our hearts as we wait. See, waiting is not just the in-between time. Waiting is both a revealer of what's in our hearts and it shapes our hearts. See, waiting isn't just this hurdle that's keeping us from something. Waiting is the silent force that is molding us into who we are. You can tell a lot about a person based on how they wait. And what I believe to be true is that what's more important than the things that we wait for is the work that God wants to do in us as we wait. Let me say that again because it's a big point for us this morning. I believe that what's more important than the things that we are waiting for is the work that God wants to do in us as we wait. That waiting is essential to what it means to trust in God, what it means to live by faith, because waiting is the gap between what God has promised and the fulfillment of what he has promised. Waiting is, is the tension, it's the longing, it's even the, the anguish of waiting for God to fulfill what he has promised and what he has said is true. Now, specifically for our purposes today, what I want us to think about is that we are waiting for this promise of Jesus returning, of him ushering us into the eternal state. And I want us to just be reminded today that the Bible describes really the Christian life as a time of waiting. If you read throughout the New Testament, there are all kinds of verses about uh, the calling upon our lives to wait and to wait in a particular way. These are just some of the verses in the New Testament. But if you think about main, main characters throughout the Bible, they demonstrate faithful waiting. You think about Moses. Moses waited for 40 years in the wilderness before he heard the voice of God through the burning bush. You think about Joseph, who waited 13 years from being sold into slavery by his brothers to being released from prison. You think about David. David waited 20 years from being told he, he would be king to actually taking the throne. Even Jesus waited. He waited 30 years before beginning his public ministry here on the earth. And so the question for us as Christians is not, will we wait? The question for us is, how should we wait? And even underneath that, what, what does the kind of waiting that we exhibit reveal about the condition of our hearts. And in connection with that, how, how should our eschatology impact the way that we wait for Jesus? Those are some of the main questions we're gonna look at this morning. I think 2 Corinthians chapter five, these verses here, I think show us four ways 
to wait faithfully for what is promised to us in the future. So we're just going to walk through these verses this morning. Here's the first way that this passage helps us to wait faithfully. We are to wait with a hope-filled groaning. Just to give us a little bit of context here uh, in this letter, 2 Corinthians 5 in particular, Paul is less concerned about describing the how and the when of these eschatological events as he is in describing his rock-solid confidence in the future existence and how that should shape the way we live today. See, unlike 1 Corinthians 15 or even 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, Paul here is not concerned about the timing or the, the timeline. He is concerned about impact. How should the future impact the way that we live right now, and in particular, the way that we wait for Jesus to return? Verses one through five, Paul is using various metaphors to really communicate the same point. He talks about tearing down a tent, a house made not with hands, the taking on and taking off of clothing, nakedness. All of these metaphors Paul is using to contrast the earthly with the heavenly. That the earthly tent here is a metaphor for our earthly bodies. And Paul's point here in these first couple of verses is that they are temporary, that they are subject to wear and tear. They are transient. This is the outer person that is wasting away that Paul references at chapter 4, verse 17. Now, tent life, I think, is an accurate description of our lives here on the earth. If you've ever gone camping before, if you've ever slept in a tent, you know that this metaphor resonates. Going camping, sleeping in a tent, that, that, if you've had that experience, you know that is not a permanent dwelling, right? That is temporary. And it's a great reminder for us, it's a great metaphor that our lives here on the earth, we are brief sojourners here as we live. Now, the problem, though, that I think Paul is addressing is that far too many Christians are way too comfortable living in these earthly tents. I think what Paul's addressing here is that there are far too many Christians who actually believe that this is our permanent home here on the earth, which is why I think he introduces the idea of groaning in verse two. Look at what he says. He says, for in this tent, our bodies, we groan. Why? He says, because we long to put on the heavenly dwelling. See, one of the ways that you can know if you are too comfortable living here on the earth, thinking that this is your permanent home, is by evaluating the type of inward groan within your heart. That we're all groaning for something. We're all longing and yearning for something. And yet Paul is introducing this concept for us to discern what we are groaning and longing for more. And I think to wait well for Jesus to return, for him to come and, and to transform these earthly tents into heavenly uh, buildings or heavenly um, you know, temples involves this future-driven, hope-filled groaning. Okay, let's talk about this idea of groaning for a moment. This groaning, I think what Paul's talking about here is, is almost like this hope-filled sigh of the heart. It's this exhale 
that is evidence that you are longing for God and this future existence with him more than you are yearning to build your own kingdom here on the earth. See, this groaning is not rooted in a frustrated type of complaining exhale of the heart. You know, some of us did that this morning as you woke up this morning and you walked to the bathroom. You probably let out maybe a a sigh or a sense of, man, my body aches in certain ways or it's too early or it's too bright, whatever the case may be. That's not what Paul is talking about here. This type of groaning is eschatologically shaped. It's the type of groaning that's filled with longing and hope in God. That it is on one hand, a type of groaning and exhale that says, this is not how things should be in the world, while also saying, this is not how all things will be because Jesus will make all things new. It's holding both intention as you exhale and live your life here on the earth. And I think this type of groaning protects our hearts from becoming way too comfortable here on the earth. Maybe another way of thinking about this type of groaning, if you are not consistently yearning and groaning for the things of God and for your future existence with God, that actually reveals that perhaps you've been lured into the lie that this life is all that there is. Now, you might attest to that. You might say, no, 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 pastor, I I believe in heaven. I believe in eternity. But I would say Paul would even push back on that and say, you might believe that intellectually, but to the degree that you've allowed that truth to sink down into your heart and impact the way that you're living in the present is best demonstrated in this type of hope-filled groaning, yearning, and longing for God. And so my question for you this morning is, when you think about your inward groaning and yearning and longing, is it for the things of God to be with him forever and ever, or are you noticing that your groaning and yearning are really, it's really for the things of this world. It's for temporary things and possessions and and pleasures and, and experiences more than being with God forever. I think that's an important question. I think that identifying the root of your heart's groaning reveals the location of your hope. And so this question of what are you groaning for? What are you yearning for? What are you truly desiring is important in addressing your heart by using some of these eschatological truths that we've been looking at the last few weeks and reorienting your heart towards the things of God in our heavenly existence. And so we wait faithfully for Jesus by by having this hope-filled groaning. Now, not only that, but the second way I think that we wait faithfully for Jesus is we wait with an eternally grounded courage. If you look at verse six, and Paul actually says it twice here in this passage, verse six and eight, he says, so we are always of good courage. Paul's whole life, if you've read any of his letters, his whole life was saturated with a type of confidence because of the hope of the resurrection. And that's really what should be produced in our hearts. The the result of believing what God has said about the future should produce within us confidence, boldness, 
and courageous living for the gospel. It should not produce a type of spiritual fog or haze or even spiritually daydreaming about heaven 24-7. It surely should not produce fear, but there's also that other extreme of just daydreaming all day long about heaven. And I think what Paul's calling us to is to live with this type of courageous living for the gospel because we know what's going to happen in the end. Now, this type of courageous living does not mean that we live unwisely or recklessly or live with a type of foolishness. I think we need to be good stewards of our bodies. Remember last week's message that these bodies will be transformed into something much better, but these are gifts that we need to steward well. So yeah, eat healthy. Yeah, exercise. Yeah, wear a seatbelt. Live with wisdom, but do so not out of fear of growing older or dying and not idolizing your life here on the earth, but do so so that your bodies today can serve eternal purposes more effectively. And also, just to state this, this type of courage that Paul is calling us to does not mean that we live as jerks here on the earth. But living with courage, I think, means living with an unshakable confidence because the most important thing in the universe is guaranteed, guaranteed, by the everlasting faithfulness of God. If you are a Christian this morning, you need to be reminded that your salvation is certain and it is being guarded and protected by God himself. Is there anything more important than that? Like, is there anything more important than having the assurance that your sins are forgiven? Is there anything more important than having the assurance that you are justified before a holy God. And I think knowing that without a shadow of doubt that your eternity is being secured by God himself, that Jesus is yours and that you belong to Jesus forever, knowing that I think infuses in our hearts courage and boldness and confidence that no matter the cost, you will live all in for the gospel. So my, my next question for you is, are you living with this type of courage today? Are you living with this type of boldness, like being faithful to whatever the Lord is calling you to, no matter the cost, no matter how hard it becomes in being a Christian in this world, no matter what the world says, no matter what the world does, are you committed to being shaped by what you know to be true in the future more than what the world around you is saying? See, being an eschatologically shaped Christian, eternally minded, means that we will wait faithfully for Jesus by living with this type of courage. So we wait with groaning, we wait with courage. Number three here, though, is that we wait with a type of faith-empowered living. If you look at the second half of verse six through eight, Paul says, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, Look at verse seven, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. Notice here, Paul is highlighting the necessity of walking by faith and not by sight. Why? Why why does he kind of include this idea of, of faith empowered living? It's because the things that are promised for us in the future our future existence with with God forever and ever, those are things that we can't see right now. Those are things out in the future. 
all that we can see right now is brokenness and pain and temptations and, and sin and, and almost as if evil is winning. And so living by, by sight, living by what you see or even by what you feel will shape how you live today more than, than your eschatology. And so Paul, I think, is warning us here that if you're living by what you see or living by your emotions, they will always try to convince you that what's most important is what you see and what you feel rather than what you know to be true. And just to maybe get more specific with that this morning, that you might be in a season of life right now where all that you see in front of you is pain and hardship. And so you might feel despair and you might be tempted to stop trusting in God. Or you might be in a season of life right now where what you see is that you've been wronged by a person. And so what you might feel is anger. And so you might be tempted to erupt on somebody with your words. You might be in a season right now where what you see is that you want something that someone else has. And so you feel jealousy, you feel covetousness, and you might be tempted to go and get that no matter the cost. You might be in a season right now where what you see is a temptation of pleasure. And so you might pursue that in a way that is ungodly and sinful. You might see that your body's wasting away and you might be tempted to feel hopelessness and therefore become bitter. See how what our sight does when we live by what we see rather than living by faith. Living by faith rather than what you see or what you feel means that you're gonna trust and believe in what God has said is true no matter what you see or what you feel. That God is saying to us, look, you might see pain and hardship, but be reminded and trust in me because I use all things for your good. Keep trusting in me. That what God is saying, look, you might see temptation and, and, and the allure of pleasure all around you, but be reminded that in my presence, there's fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Trust in me. God might be telling you today that what you see all around you is that evil is winning, that death is reigning. But God is saying, hold on, keep trusting, keep believing, keep persevering because my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all of my purposes. Death will not have the last say. See, living by faith means directing the eyes of your heart toward the promises of God. It's to lift your heart upward away from your circumstances, away from your temptations, away from what you can see, and to look upward at God. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3, to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, to set your mind on things that are above, not the things on the earth. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 4, the chapter right before our passage this morning, verses 16 through 18 here, this is a wonderful description of what it means to live by faith. It says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Awaiting faithfully means walking by faith, by fixing our eyes on eternity so that the desires of our heart and our actions follow. So we walk by faith, we, we wait for Jesus with this type of groaning, this type of courage, this faith-filled living. Here's the last one this morning, I'm gonna spend the majority of our time here on this point, is that we wait with a sober expectation that you will give an account before God, the righteous judge. Look, this passage is so helpful. Uh, This passage, I think, helps us to manage the tension of on one hand having assurance and on the other hand having a warning before us. That we have assurance where we can live with courage, we can live with confidence because we can trust in God's promises that by God's power he will resurrect us and transform our bodies so we have assurance but lest we become puffed up with pride, we have this warning here that you will give an account before God as your judge based on how you live your life here on the earth. I think this creates a sober-mindedness, a much-needed sober-mindedness. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, just to zoom out for a moment, as we think about the judgment seat of Christ, my particular belief is that there are two different kinds of judgments that we see throughout the scriptures. That on one hand, we see the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, which is for unbelievers. And the sentencing there for every unbeliever before that kind of judgment is eternal separation from God in hell forever and ever. But then the other kind of judgment, the judgment that we see in our passage this morning, is the judgment seat of Christ. This is for believers. This is not a judgment of your salvation. This is a judgment based on how you live your life here on the earth. And because our passage is, um, is speaking about that kind of judgment, I want to provide for us three things to know about the judgment seat of Christ. There are a lot of things that we wish we could know that the scriptures aren't exactly clear on, but I think that these, these are three things that I think we can know. Here's the first one related to the judgment seat of Christ is that all believers, all believers will be judged based on their good deeds and motives, making them eligible for rewards. Now this phrase in verse 10 of our passage, the judgment seat of Christ comes from the Greek word bima. The bima is, uh, was in the city of Corinth and it was right in this prominent center location and it was the most important place in the city. This is the place where public proclamations and judicial announcements uh, took place. And there was a, a type of, of weightiness around that particular area. I think Paul's using this word here to tell us as Christians that we will stand before a far more imposing divine judgment seat, the judgment seat of Christ where King Jesus is sitting. Now this judgment seat is 
an accounting for believers based on our works, our deeds, and our motives here on the earth. Again, this is not about salvation. This is about how we lived our lives. 1 Corinthians 3, I think, describes this type of judgment really well. It says, now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, shall me unpack that a little bit. The foundation there is Jesus Christ and the way that we live our lives, whether good or bad, we're building on the foundation of Jesus. And if you look at these different items here, this is kind of a spectrum describing the kind of works and deeds your life really is. If you look at gold, silver, and precious stones, those will make it through the fire of this judgment and you will be rewarded accordingly. Those are good deeds. These other items, wood, hay, straw, will be burned up. Those are bad deeds that will not make it through the, this type of judgment of fire. So verse 13, it says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, that of Jesus, survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So notice, again, this type of judgment through the fire will be judging the, the quality and the character of our works, of our deeds, even at the level of our motivation within our hearts. Just think about that for a moment. Like, yes, our salvation is fully based on Jesus Christ. But here, this judgment seat of Christ, you will give an account based on every word you have spoken, every work that you've done, every deed, every thought that you've ever had, every motive, every plan, every scheme, every secret, every desire that you've ever had, you will give an account before God based on those things. This is an important reminder that you can do the right thing for the wrong reason, and no one knows. You can do the right thing for the wrong motives even. And this is an important reminder that God is not only concerned with what you do, but why you do it. And so look, it's great that you serve, but why do you serve? It's great that you hold the door open for somebody or take out the trash or give financially or encourage somebody, but why? Why do you do that? Is it to be seen by others? Is it to be patted on the back? What are your motives? I think this is challenging because our motives are all under the surface. No one sees. No one's really inspecting your life on that level. No one's poking around at your motives. You know them, and God knows them. And so could it be that many of our good deeds are actually done for the wrong reasons, the wrong motives, and will not pass this judgment of fire on the day of judgment? Look, God cares about the heart. 
cares about what's going on here at this level of your life. Yes, what we do in the body has moral significance, has eternal consequences. And I think the more mindful we are of our mortality, the more mindful we will be of our morality. Right? The more you think about death and standing before God as your judge, the more motivated we ought to be to live godly, holy lives. Because you can be certain of this, that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you won't be asked based on what you know, based on what you've read. You will give an account based on how you lived your life, what you have done and why you have done what you have done. And let me be clear, let me be maybe bold today. That should terrify some of us today. That should terrify us in a good way because some of us have one foot in the world and one foot with Jesus. And you might be saved, but the way that you are living is that you want the pleasures of this world and you want the benefits of heaven. And you think you are fooling God. You might be fooling other people in this room. You're not fooling God. That will be revealed on this day, everything that you have done. And so I'm pressing this morning because this passage, this idea of the judgment seat of Christ is used for us as a healthy motivator to making sure that you are living a life worthy of the gospel, that you will give an account before God, unable to fool him. Now, secondly, I think another thing that we can know about this type of judgment is that there will be varying degrees of rewards. I know this is a little bit controversial. Some people don't actually believe this. You get into the heavens, new heavens, then everybody has the same experience. But I think from Luke 19 and Matthew 25, I think it alludes to something different. I think even the concept of Matthew 11, verses 20 and 24, where Jesus explicitly says that the punishment in hell will be more tolerable for some than others, I think that same principle, just in reverse, can be applied to the new heavens of varying degrees of rewards and experiences in heaven. Now, some of you are just saying, man, if I'm in, I'm great. That's awesome. And that's fine, but I think this idea of varying degrees is also another healthy motivator for living a godly life here on the earth. I think you see this in Luke 19, verses 12 through 17 with the parable of the 10 minas, but also the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, I think alludes to this because Jesus is saying in that parable, God gives us different talents. He gives us different gifts. And based on how you use those talents here on the earth, what you do with them, how you live will then determine your life in heaven, in the new heavens, what kind of responsibility you'll have, what kind of authority you'll have, what kind of role that you'll have in the new heavens. Now, admittedly, I don't think the scriptures are exactly clear on specifically what these rewards are. I think it could be a, a combination of things. It could be the amount of jewels you have on the crown of righteousness from 2 Timothy 4 could be that. It could be a, a greater degree or capacity of joy, happiness in the new heavens. See that possibly in Luke 15 where 
a sinner who repents and, and gets saved, there's more heaven or there's more joy in the heavens among the angels. So there might be differing degrees there. Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis are proponents of that view. It could be what I just said, Matthew 25, a greater degree of responsibility, authority, a different kind of role in the new heavens, or it could be a combination of those three things. The point is, though, is I think there will be varying degrees of rewards based on how you lived your life here on the earth. Now, the last thing here that I want to point out, I think maybe the most important, is that the judgment seat of Christ demands a greater sense of awe as it relates to God's holiness. I think this passage shows us a lot about God. And let me just encourage you, as you're reading the Bible, as you're studying the Bible in your own time, a great question to ask is, what does this passage teach me about God? Such a great question. I think here, this passage shows us a lot about the holiness of God. One commentary put it this way from this passage, that the teaching about the judgment seat before which all believers must come reminds us that we have been saved not for a life of aimlessness or indifference, but to live as to the Lord. This doctrine of the universality of the judgment of believers preserves the moral seriousness of God, that the sure prospect of the judgment seat reminds believers that while they are righteous in Christ by faith alone, the faith that justifies is to be expressed by love and obedience. And I think what this shows us is that God is the only righteous judge who is worthy enough to judge all of creation. And when we lose sight of the judgment seat of Christ, we lose, I think, a, a piece, an element of the holiness of God, that we lose this, this sense of, of the weightiness of God's glory. And I think so many believers today have no clue about the holiness of God, have no idea about God's otherness. And I think losing sight of the judgment seat of Christ will lead you to only emphasizing the mercy of God and the grace of God and the comfort of God. And all those things are amazing and really a byproduct of the holiness of God. But when we're reminded of the judgment seat of Christ, we are reminded of God's otherness, that he's on a whole nother level than anyone else. There is no one like our God. And when you experience the holiness of God, when you get a glimpse of it, when you become more aware of it, the response in your life will be repentance. It will be falling on your face before a holy God as your sin is exposed before him. It will be the type of response from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter six, he gets that glimpse of God on the throne, gets a glimpse of his glory, of his majesty, of his holiness. What is Isaiah's response? Falls on his face and says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Look, the judgment seat of Christ screams at us, do not play around with sin. Do not fool around with sin. Do not get as close as you can to sin. Run from it. Flee from sin. Because in God, there is no darkness at all. 
And when we lose this category of the judgment seat of Christ, we have a tendency to look at sin and not see it as sinful at all. When we lose this, we have a tendency to become so familiar with sin that it loses its offensiveness about who God is in his character. And when we are in that place, we are in grave danger. I mean, even what you hear from time to time, what I hear, even among believers, when they think about eternal separation from God in hell forever and ever, what I hear from time to time is, oh man, that's so harsh of God. Man, that, that must contradict the fact that God is loving. That can't be possibly what the scriptures are teaching. And look, when you hear that, that is just evidence of how far we have strayed from the biblical understanding of how evil evil is and how gloriously holy God is. And I just wonder, as I've been thinking about the judgment seat of Christ and the eternal separation from God, I just wonder if we have been given the biblical description of hell as the primary mechanism to show us just how sinful sin is and how majestic God is. Just wonder if we have this description of hell to remind us of the gravity and the weight of sin and what it means before a holy God. Look, I just want to say something for those who are here this morning and, and you're not a Christian. Like, you're here and, and maybe, maybe you would even call yourself a Christian, but the reality is, is that you are not. I just want to say to you this morning, as lovingly as possible, but as directly as possible, you do not want to stand before God as your judge before the great white throne judgment. You do not want that. I do not want that for you because when, if you stand before God as your judge there, the sentencing is the same for all unbelievers. It is eternal separation in hell from God forever and ever. And the reality is, is that some are headed there. Some perhaps in this room right now, you are headed for just that. And some of you, you've heard the gospel. You know exactly what the answer is for your sin. It's Jesus. And yet for whatever reason, you are saying in your life, not yet. Not yet. Maybe later, Maybe down the road, I'll get serious with Jesus, but right now, I'm not ready to surrender my life. Maybe there's others of us who think that you've believed in Jesus, but you really haven't. Like you would call yourself a, a fan of Jesus, but you're not truly a follower of Jesus who has surrendered your life to King Jesus. And my job, what I want to do this morning and every week is to lovingly stand up here and to call you to believe in Jesus and to repent of your sins and to remind you it is not too late. You do not want to find out what happens if you stand before God as your judge and you're not covered by the grace and the righteousness of Jesus. You do not want to find out what happens. 
but do not delay. Do not wait. Come to Jesus today, right now, and believe in him. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can wash your sins away and cleanse you and forgive you and give you everlasting life. It's not too late. Look, church, I, I, I view my job, part of my job, maybe the primary role for me as your pastor, and I take this very seriously, is to help prepare you for the day of judgment. So all that I do, the way that I preach, the way that I lead, the way that I shepherd, is done so in a way to help you be prepared to meet God. That what I want for you more than anything, I want so badly for you to stand before God and for him to say those words over your life, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master, well done. That's what I want for you so badly, desperately. I don't want you limping into heaven. I don't want you going to heaven thinking to yourself, man, I wish I was more sold out for the gospel. I don't want that. I don't want you to be filled with regret if there's regret in heaven about what you could have done in living for God's glory. And let me be clear, the way, the best way to prepare you is not by entertainment on Sunday mornings. The best way to prepare you is not by coddling you on a weekly basis. The best way to prepare you is not by telling you what you wanna hear. It's not by having you feel good about yourself as you walk out of here on Sunday. The best way to prepare you to meet God is by standing up here and unashamedly and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ every single week. And, and the commitment is, is rooted in this book, that the only thing that's going to prepare you is by making plain the scriptures, the, the convicting, the challenging, the piercing word of God. This is what prepares you, not the opinions and the entertainment of man. That this is the only thing that can shake us awake from spiritually sleepwalking as we live our lives on the earth. Look, I wanna be the kind of pastor where you see in the new heavens and you thank me <laughs> rather than seeing me and thinking, Pastor, why did you avoid the judgment seat of Christ? Why didn't you make the gospel more clear? Why didn't you talk about repentance? Why didn't you talk about hell more? Why did you just tickle our ears? That I want to be found faithful so that you are prepared. Look, life is a vapor. As your pastor in his mid-30s, I understand that. <laughs> Thank you, Bill Armstrong. You are here today and gone tomorrow. Your life is a blip on the radar of all of eternity. So let me challenge you to wait faithfully for Jesus and his return 
to wait with this hope-filled, groaning, this eternally grounded courage, faith-empowered living with a soberness that you will stand before God as your judge. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise and we thank you for the endless grace that is found in Jesus. God, we thank you that without him, or there is no hope. We, we thank you, Lord, that we know that truth, that we can throw ourselves upon Jesus, that we can, by faith, be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And yet, God, we also thank you for your holiness. We thank you that there is no God like you. We thank you, God, that you despise evil and sin and darkness. Lord, help us to hate the things that you hate, or to be motivated and empowered to live a life worthy of the gospel because you are the righteous judge. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.